welcome to the Life on This podcast, which is dedicated to helping you live your life as fully as possible. I'm your host, Samson Jones. And I'm your co-host, James Croft. Life on This is an approach that adapts the lessons from spiritual communities and congregations in a way that everyone can take part. I'm the pioneer of Life on This and co-founder of Sunday Assembly, a worldwide network of secular congregations. And I'm the leader of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, one of America's largest humanist congregations. So this is what we do. On the Lifeless Podcast, we interview brilliant people who can give you and us insights into how to take the best parts of spirituality, combine it with science so that it works for everyone, whether they've got a faith or they don't have any religion at all. So, James, you ready to celebrate being alive? Absolutely. Of course you are. Today we are interviewing Mark Stevenson, an author, futurologist, consultant, entrepreneur and podcaster. Uh, the book that catapulted him into renown was The Optimist's Guide to the Future, which examined how humans could make the next century the best century. Now, before you throw your phone into the sea because you don't want to hear a mindless optimist, then let me reassure you, that's not what you're going to get. Mark, despite his Twitter handle, Optimist on Tour, describes himself as a possibilist because that bright future is possible but only if we make the change. I know Mark because he's spoken at Sunday Assemblies many times and we've always got on and it is just a huge honour to have him in this podcast. We wanted to speak to Mark because a key benefit that you get from being part of a spiritual community is this idea that you can change the world. Whereas a key problem that I see in society today is that we feel this world is so big and actually how can one of us make a difference. Mark gives us an overview of systems change, which is the best way of thinking about really making change and connecting personal to major change, in my humble opinion. There's practical tips on fighting climate change and a really simple overview of uh, what he calls the ladder of change, which again gives this sense that you know you can go and make a difference just as you. One thing that really sticks in my mind from this conversation was Mark's encouragement to make the most of this pandemic. Now, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic is a total disaster, but Mark reminds us that it's also an opportunity to make change in your community, organisation, business or personal life. Because if you can't make radical change now, when can you? And yeah, this, it's not like make the most of the pandemic and learning how to make bread and learn the violin and such like. It's really thinking about this is an opportunity, a moment where positive change is possible. And unless we think about that, and unless we try to make that positive change possible, then actually maybe some really negative things can happen. So let's tune into what the possibilist has to say as we present Mark Stevenson. So uh, welcome, uh, Mark, to the Life on This Live uh, podcast. It is wonderful to have you here. Uh, I'm Sanderson, and this is... I'm James Croft. Yeah, and so we, are, we really wanted to speak to you because you are uh, you're a futurologist. You mm. have got this view of looking to change the world and a key part of the idea of lifefulness, of reimagining the secular, of the spiritual community in a way that everyone can take part is really thinking about like, what does it mean to uh, 
what does it mean to change the world? We so often feel so small, but like, how can, how can we actually do something? But before mm. we get into that deliciousness and uh, all of your wisdom on that, we'd like to kick off just to ask, did you have uh, any sort of spiritual background or any sort of faith background or philosophical background when you were growing up? Uh, yes, uh, sort of, not really. I mean, my father um, did a tour. What's the Pope? No. <laughs> yes, my father was as a pope. Uh, no, my father sort of did a philosophical tour of all the various religious offerings, um, and uh, and ended up, I think, nearly becoming a Quaker, and then ended up becoming a Methodist. Huh. Um, but I wasn't. It wasn't really uh, forced upon me. I did go to Sunday school a bit. Um, and then I got bored with that. Um, so my parents definitely, um, what you would call, you know, Middle England Christians, slightly right wing, conservative type Christians, you know, that kind. Um, and, when did they stop being disappointed in you? Uh, oh, never. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think actually that's, I, I remember that I remember the exact moment my father stopped being disappointed in me is when he opened up the Times and I was interviewed, I think, in it or something, or I was quoted in an article and he went, I still have no idea what you do, but if you're in the Times, you must be doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> that is good to get that validation yeah i mean i meant when i found up and said that dad i've got my first book deal he said why why would anybody give you a book deal you're a nobody so <laughs> it took quite a lot to impress my dad <laughs> parents are i went and my dad is just on a mission to be unimpressed to my face but one of those ones which is a bit complicated where it's like oh he's always telling people about you and you're like well i'm i'm, I'm just here mate i'm just yeah. here anytime it's yeah, well, it's, I think it's I think it's a skill that they all learn in that generation. It's like because they've got that whole and, it, and actually talking about sort of that kind of Protestant work ethic. You know, the whole point of that mindset, I think, was along the lines of whatever you do, you've got to work really, really, really hard. Otherwise, you'll get nowhere. But for God's sake, don't think you're above anybody else and don't expect to achieve anything. <laughs> so you're yes. always trapped in between the two. So it's like you've got to work hard, otherwise you'll be a loser. But you know, don't get above yourself. Yeah, but don't be too much of not a loser. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I had, because we've had a bit of a shared background in stand-up at various times of our oh, careers. Yes, I, I had a show where I sold all the tickets by hand and it ended up being in the Union Chapel. There are about 700 oh, wow. people there. God, I'd met yes. them all. They ended with fire breathers on stage and a cool choir in one corner, a brass band in the other, someone playing the organ, literally act, like acrobats going up and down the stage. And okay, Sanderson. Yeah, you're great. We oh, get no, it. no, don't, don't worry. The, uh, and then I saw him the next day uh, and I was like, so what do you think of the show? And he's like, it was so lovely to see Georgina's friend, Katie. And I was like, <laughs> are you actually joking me? That, that is definitely a module that you had to learn. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, so you, whilst you, it's clear that you must have had a very philosophical and engaged background, like, mm. uh, what would you say then your ultimate meaning is? Is if there's a value which guides you uh, in your work? Um, well, uh, my belief is if you have any kind of privilege, it's your job to make the world better for people less privileged than you. So I get slightly annoyed when people say, well, how are we gonna convince those, those, those poor disadvantaged people to get involved in climate change or whatever? And it's kind of like, well, it's the duty of the privilege to do the heavy lifting on this stuff. Mm. So I am lucky enough that I was born into, you know, what probably the maximum amount of privilege possible in that I was born white, male, middle-class, out of conflict, 
um, in, in a, into a family that loved me. So, you know, you just pretty much winning the lottery at that point. So, mm. um, so I, I'm basically trying to make the world more sustainable, equitable, humane, or just, I want to pass on a future to my children that's worth having. So that's my, that's my big thing. So is that like an idea of service, would you say? So it's like there's an ethical and, and the, in the environment is something which you has just spoken out as the biggest thing or no i don't think i don't really think it's served i just think it's the most logical and sensible thing to do it's just bleeding obvious isn't it i mean you know there's a planet there's only one of us there's only one planet rather you know my ch my children are going to grow up on it it's, it's my favorite planet it's where all my stuff is mm. uh, you know and and if you're not i mean my 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 you know, once you get to a certain level of privilege, if you're not making the world more sustainable, more equitable, more humane or just, what really is the point of getting up in the morning is kind of my position because, you know, every, or every single one of us can do that, you know. So um, it's just a makes obvious sense to me. I don't see it as some massive spiritual calling. It's like, it's being obvious. <laughs> Great to take a really sort of inspiring mission and turn it into something which is just obvious, logical, and sort of, sort of, you know, really the only thing you can do. Yeah, it's very much, very much my love making. It's very, you know, it's very workaday, <laughs> but it does the job. The uh, and on the subject of your love making, we've got a <laughs> montage. No, it's uh... <laughs> a very short. Oh, I was quite excited <laughs> for a moment there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's eight seconds long. <laughs> <laughs> we had to go to get to go and find a number of different incidents and it's yeah, really yeah. quite it's, the disappointment is palpable and yes. the uh, mm. i uh, would you like to go and give a bit of a sort of potted description of your career we met through <laughs> sunday assembly i mean even the mention of your career might be i don't yes. know sort of crazy paving sort of psychedelic impressionistic I, I think calling it a career is is, is overblown um uh, although actually I, d I did do a lot of mentoring now to people um, and when I was speaking to younger people in particular um, I always say to them that you know your career won't make sense in the windscreen but it might make sense in the rearview mirror and, that, mm. and, it will, and it will show you the kind of values you chose or, or chose to ignore basically that so my career has always been I guess guided by my wife says by communication, by trying to translate things from one thing to another. So um, I've been a semi-professional musician. In fact, I still am. So I have a record deal, which I'm desperately not fulfilling the second album at the moment to the record company because of lockdown and two children. A um, very, very difficult second album. Well, it's not actually difficult because I've got a brilliant co-writer, but it's just I don't I haven't got the time to actually do my bit on it because uh, of the, the kids' lockdown and all the work I do. So um, I've, uh, I've been a cryptographer. I've been um, a journalist, a writer. I've written a couple of books that did quite well. Uh, I've been a stand-up comedian, as you know. I've been a comedy writer. I've been a playwright. I had a play tour the UK last year, which was the first new comedy to tour, you know, last year in big theatres, um, et cetera, et cetera. But why I am now is kind of what they call me a futurologist. And there are no qualifications for being a futurologist. I hate being called a futurologist because futurologist is usually um, privileged men uh, telling us that technology will save us um, without any systemic understanding of, you know, inequality or climate change or the stuff that underlies it. And actually the questions that, you know, we need to answer are not answered by technology. They're answered, you know, by philosophy and ethics and their moral questions. And, and those haven't really changed. So, um, so yeah, I wrote a couple of books about the future. People started calling me a futurologist. And now I consult everybody from the Ministry of Defence to Medicine Sans Frontieres on how to think about the future. Who is the consulting client that you had to have the longest spoon when you supped with? 
Uh, well, some I won't suck with at all. So um, if uh, if an arms dealer comes to me and says, can you help us be yeah. in the future, then it's like, you know, uh, fuck you. Uh, same with tobacco companies, unless they were asking me, how do we get out of tobacco? Mm. Same, same with gambling companies. So I won't, I won't suck. Um, it was interesting with the MOD um, because obviously, you know, I'm, like, I think I'm generally a pacifist in most situations. Yes. Um, and, uh, but that, that I'm advising them on climate change and how to do that. And actually what I'm trying to do there is, is get a number of militaries to collaborate and make joint statements about the common threat multiplier that is climate change. So actually I'm trying to do a bit for world peace by getting militaries to collaborate on things that they, uh, they can without, um, without necessarily upsetting their, their masters. So I'm, yeah, so I'm trying to use that as a, I'm trying to use climate change as a proxy for world peace. So I've hopefully and managed to get a small task. Yes. Well, I've hopefully managed to get national security onto the agenda of the next big climate change uh, thing in, 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 uh, in Glasgow. And I'm currently in negotiations with, a few people about what we might do if militaries started saying important, interesting things about climate change and how they might collaborate and how we might do that along with society and so on and so forth. So, um, so that was an interest. I mean, I'm not sure it was a long spoon. It was a very bendy one. <laughs> Imagine if they were like, on Mark Stevenson's advice, we've all collaborated and we've realised that we've got to invade India to solve climate change. You'd be like, no, you've misunderstood the presentation. <laughs> yes. 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 Anyway, we've sent all our nukes. <laughs> no, it's slightly more subtle than that. What's interesting though, at the moment, because of the COVID crisis, which we're of course still talking in the middle of, yeah. that radical ideas that I was putting forward to people like the MOD, um, which previously may have literally got me shot. Um, there's now a culture of the possible about that the radical ideas now being much more accepted, which is which is um, which is good. You know, I'm I'm finding that very refreshing, and actually, I've got a few of my clients to do things that four or five months ago they would never have dreamt of and now they're going yeah let's go for it so so having those conversations with the un and and the mod and all that kind of stuff you know i find myself going what am i doing here i'm just an next stand-up comedian why am i why am i asking these generals to talk to each other but sometimes you have to be that weirdo the uh and uh, so before we got on like one of the real real reasons i wanted to speak to you is that like the in this part of changing the world in lifefulness and i've explained our mission to you of looking at the mm -hmm. spiritual community and seeing how can we go and reimagine it and what are the necessary component pieces and one of them is this you know people come to these communities and they go and lead these sort of spiritual lives lives of purpose because they've got this idea of how the world changes and often i look at stuff like mindfulness and i think well actually the reason that that's often a bit shallow is because they said oh it's just meditating and all of that stuff is a bit complicated you can leave behind mm. and and i think this idea of systems change is like so uh, like is the the best lens for looking at this and so could you go in and i'm sure we're going to be talking about it more could you go and give an introduction to systems change for someone who hasn't ever heard of that as a sort of separate discipline and thinks was it like changing your brake fluid or something like that right well the good thing is i now don't have to because of the covid crisis so what happened was um you know about two or three months ago everybody got a lesson in interconnectedness of systems and how um, I can't remember who said the quote, somebody from, uh, oh, I can't remember the name, but they, the, the quote is, the trouble is the universe, as soon as you pull at something, you find it's, it's hitched to everything else. Mm. Um, and so suddenly people were going like, hang on a minute. Uh, so there's, there's 
protection to biodiversity, then there's, you know, how our immune systems react, then there's the economics of stuff, and then we've got frontline workers who are being paid the least, but we now value them the most, which is the exact opposite of what happened. So suddenly I don't have to give people an, a, 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 a lesson in systems, because I go, that's it, okay, and clearly we've now realised, I mean, lots of us realised before, but lots of people are going to, hang on, when you look about it, this system is clearly broken, because how can the world fall apart? So, mm. and how is it that, you know, uh, some people can get tests and some people can't and how some nations dealing with it one way and so they kind of see that systemic view of the world and uh, and what my job is about is trying to is to make my clients understand that system because my all that systemic context because my, my position is if you don't understand the context you're operating in you're irrelevant at best and dangerous at worst and so many organizations just think about their own little narrow thing they don't see that interconnectedness and so it's about understanding the and then doing your bit to shift that system, or that's the way you recruit, the way you invest, uh, the, the way you, uh, you know, build things or whatever to make the world more sustainable, equitable, humane, or just. And there is no one way of doing it. Okay. But what I do know is that, and this comes back to your point, is it, it generally succeeds in the examples I've written about and I've worked on. It generally succeeds when a diverse group of people come together to solve a problem. There's a massive overhead in managing that because getting large groups of diverse people to come up with solutions is actually quite expensive in terms of managing mm. it. But the return on investment, if you like, of doing that is, 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 is orders of magnitude better than trying to do it another way. Uh, that is a pretty good uh, definition there. I think that's a way, something we can go and build on. I was wondering about something you said there, which was that it seems like you have a real focus on systemic change and recognizing the interconnectedness of different components of things and not just piecemeal reforms, but really getting underneath, getting at the guts of something and kind of working out what in the systems is going wrong. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a lot of your work, you have a focus on optimism and our capability <laughs> to change the future. Yeah. And something I find, at least in my own work with my congregation, we recently had a talk about climate change mm -hmm. and it really stressed how it's a lot of interconnected systemic problems that yeah. make it very difficult mm -hmm. to tackle climate change because you can't just change one thing. You have to change whole structures of society to really get at it. And that almost can be disempowering mm -hmm. and people feel like it's too big for them yeah. to take on. So yeah. how do you kind of balance the optimism and the systems change parts of your message? Well, first of all, I'm not an optimist. So let's put, let's get that. Uh, I, uh, I'm a postabilist. So I believe the future can be better. Um, mm. I think optimism too often gets tied with uh, wishful thinking. And so I'm a very skeptical person. I'm not a cynical person. I, and I, I make these distinctions very clearly. I cannot bear cynics because all they do is complain about the world and then do nothing to change it. So cynicism is really just obedience to the status quo that you're also complaining about. So you're pretty useless mm. if you're a cynic. Although we're all programmed to be cynical, aren't we? I mean, it's, it's actually part of our DNA, really, you know, to be naturally kind of nervous of things. And, and in place of course, of you'd can... say that. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> that, <laughs> this is giving a demonstration Indeed. there more than Indeed. anything. Indeed, right. I mean, you he know. He thinks he's so funny. <laughs> in the UK, though, it is a bit of a cultural stamp. And you kind of yeah. say, oh, I'm, I'm a cynic, you know, I'm a bit of an old cynic, as if, as if it's a good thing, you know. I mean, you come out of the womb in this country and they go, well, that was a bad move. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm possibilistic. I believe the future can be better. I don't know whether it will be. I just know that I'm going to try and make it so. And so how do you balance the stuff? Well, you know, if you, you know, I mean, I'm going to talk about uh, getting into the spiritual side of things, you know, mm. Gandhi, who said two really important things. One was 
be the change you want to see in the world, which is hugely important. You have to live and breathe it. Um, so for instance, I have responsibly offset every single one of my carbon emissions since I was born, because if I believe in the future of saving the environment, then I have to work out how I can take back the carbon that I've been responsible for putting in. So that, and I'm, I'm currently also doing that for my entire family. Can you, uh, so by the way, can you just break down, that seems like something which uh, sounds great. How do you actually do that? Do you just go to a site and just pay like five pounds a month? Uh, <laughs> you can do that. That'd there's be ideal. Of, there's a lot of snake oil amounts in, 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 in offsetting your, your carbon emissions. So first you have to work out what they are. So what I do is I've gone back and look at the historical records. There are several methodologies for doing it. I quite like the World Bank's method. I think that one's fairly defensible. So I've gone and looked back at what my average emissions would have been every year. Then add 20% onto that. Then because for when I was writing my books in particular, I was doing an awful lot of travel. Sometimes in my consultancy work, I, I'm, I'm required to fly to places. So I've added all that in, you know, mm. 20% onto that. Um, and then what you have to do is go and find a way to take that carbon back by doing, say, responsible forestry or, or agriculture or whatever. There are places where you can pay um, into funds that help people do that. There's several things it has to be. It has to be uh, verified by an independent body so it's not the people you're selling it giving your money to that are doing the verifying okay it has, be, it has to be additional so it can't be somebody who said oh here's my forest i was never going to chop it down but now i'm protecting it so it's obviously, you know, it has to be additional stuff by the uh, way i know someone who's just sold done, done a scheme like that to people and it's such this and so that's when you say yeah. i've got this forest and it's, it's sort of like well, I've got a lovely forest here. Yeah. Be a shame if someone set fire to it. Like it's, it's a real it mafioso is, thing of like is. wandering around. Indeed. So, so you, you know, you and I wouldn't recommend. And I don't. And what you should, of course, be doing is trying to reduce your emissions as much as possible first and foremost. And then what you can't do, you offset. But obviously, I can't offset the stuff. I can't reduce the emissions I was doing when I was ten years old because I wasn't aware of this stuff. So. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so, so where were we? So, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. But the other thing that Gandhi said, which I find really useful is what you do will be insignificant, but it's really important that you do it. Huh. And, and I think that's a really, it really has really helped me a lot. It's really helped a lot of people I know kind of go, oh yeah, okay, I know. So it puts it into context, whilst, but saying how small your action will be, but also saying that you must do it and it's really important. So it, it gives importance to the insignificance if you like which i quite like is a really really smart statement because there's also something about systems change which on the other like is it, it you know you could look at it one way and say oh it's over there and it's too complicated but actually mm. the interconnectedness does mean that yeah, yeah we, we are all part of it and we're not going to be the person like pushing the like the plunger hitting the button which goes and changes everything but i, I just love that quote from gandhi there that is yeah i mean the really thing is good. systems do change don't they they clearly do because they have and we've witnessed them and we've seen them because we're not living in the same system we were in 100 years ago or 200 years ago so the fact that systems change means that, that systems change must be possible but then that's where you have to have this, this deeper understanding of how things are connected and where you have to tread quite carefully and try and understand mm. all sides. It's one of the things that's wrong with politics because politics is generally about either my way or the highway, which of course is ridiculous because you're not allowing half the system in. Uh, mm. So how do you expect to do systems change when half the people, when you've, when you've just told half the people that you, you care nothing for them um, and their points of view are pointless. So, so I'm, I'm very much against partisanship. And one of the things I had never, I mean, I've, I've been asked by every party to work with them or stand for them or whatever. And I've said no. And the same actually with religious groups as well. I've been asked by um, various religious groups or, or, or religious charities 
or humanist groups to kind of say, oh, will you be a fellow or will you endorse this or whatever? And I've always said, no, not because I don't think what they're doing is good, mm. but I know that you get to this part. No, so if you're working with this particular group, that group over there won't talk to you. And actually to do systems change, I need to talk to everybody. So I try to remain uh, unaffiliated pretty much as much as possible. Although I, 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 I will, you know, confess to an affiliation with Medicines on Frontier because I, I think that's fairly harm, harm, harmless. Oh, well, you said that, that Medicines on Frontier, huh? Mm. Come yes, on. bloody Frenchly named <laughs> human rights organisation going around saving people. How dare they? Filthy left wingers. Do you think that there's? I guess it sounds like you have a strong moral drive to do what you do, and at the same time, this desire to refrain from political and religious affiliation mm. suggests a sort of technocratic mm. approach, like. There are problems, let's fix the problems, let's agree. And it, I guess, I suppose it seems to me that a lot of the problems we face are not simply technocratic. They are actually deeply embedded in people's fundamental values. Yeah, and that a lot of the challenges I see in my work is because people don't actually agree on what a good world would look like. So we actually need to dig into the values piece. We can't float above it. Yeah, absolutely. But one of the things I find and have found time and time again is that people separated by value systems or politics, for instance, are very soon brought together around a project. So if you mm. said very differing views, where should we put the streetlights or shall we build a school or shall we, uh, you know, shall we paint the community cafe? Um, they'll agree on 98% of that. And the other 2% about that they can argue about in the pub, as far as I'm concerned. But also in doing that and coming together, they find A, that they probably agree on quite a lot of things they thought they didn't they're just doing them from a slightly different lens and the stuff they disagree about they find they can now understand that other person's position because they've now begun to see them as another human being as opposed to you know one of those weirdos over there who doesn't understand how the world works so i think it, you it, of course you have to think about values and there, there are you know uh problems with moral relativism and things like that but um i'm always about like okay we can, I could spend ages sitting in a pub or, you know, arguing about value systems or whatever and change almost nothing. Uh, whereas I can get people to build something or make something or collaborate on building something and we've got somewhere. I think the phrase value systems or whatever neatly encapsulates uh, where you think it does come in the oh, hi there these guys from the value systems and whatever community so we're gonna we're gonna put up the streetlights and fuck the astronomers. Uh, well, what's happening right now isn't it I mean it seems like we have moral systems as well as kind of structural structural systems and the sorts of revolutions in discussions about racism inequality that we're having right now speak to a kind of revolution in moral thinking that is, I guess, I think is in response to partly technocratic assumptions that we had moral consensus and people were just kind of tinkering around the edges of, of the, the neoliberal consensus, if you want to put it like that. And now a lot of people are saying, no, that whole way of thinking is not acceptable to us. We want to have a actual debate about values themselves before yeah. we can work together on shared projects. Do you think that's true or do you think that I think it's both with all these things. You can't have one without the other. But, you know, if you just spend, spend all your time debating stuff and not doing stuff, then it, that, that's as bad. So um, what, with the way I get around this problem, because um, I'm always trying to think, well, how do I move things forward? How do I get people to work together? How do we, you know, uh, and certainly one of the ways not to do it is, 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 to, is to get yourself into a group of people who agree with you or to, mm. or, to, or to join a debating society, which is what a lot of people basically essentially 
<laughs> so the way I get around it is I try to go, what is the question we're asking? Um, and what you can, you often get people to agree on the question they're asking, even if they've got different approaches to it. So, you know, for instance, one of my great bugbears with political journalism in particular is you'll get some debate that's going on, whether it's about uh, inequality or education or whatever it is, you'll get people onto a TV programme, somebody from the left, somebody from the right, and then a TV presenter will, you know, basically uh, uh, referee an argument between them and then say thank you very much and good night which to me is just so upsetting mm. because what I would expect to happen in a reasonable world would be the interview would go, this is all very interesting. You're clearly both very well informed about this. You're clearly both very passionate about it. You clearly bring differing viewpoints to it, which have use and utility. How are you going to collaborate to answer this question, which you both think is an important one for society? But that never happens. It's and such boring television. Well, well, I no, but I like, that's totally the problem I with like a lot of this stuff to, to a certain extent, right? Like it's better. It's like if you've got three minutes, you want to have this person over here. I would often be brought out in front of religious people. They'd be like, oh, this guy's from an atheist church. Mm -hmm. And then I'd just be like, yeah, I think churches are really great. I think and they'd be like, OK, I'm never going to call him again. Yeah, it's not done the thing. I don't think it is uh, more entertaining, actually, because the work I do, people are equally entertained by collaboration as they are by conflict. What it is, is it's cheap television and it's cheap yeah. because you don't have to know anything about the subject to, to, to get people to fight about it because they bring their prejudices to the, to the lens and there you go, whippy. To actually, to, to, to be based around solutions journalism, which is another thing that I'm very interested in, you actually have to mm. know what you're talking about and say, oh, that's interesting, but what about this as a solution? How do we do it? So you actually have to have journalists who actually understand what they're talking about. And I'm afraid those are very, very um, uh, far, uh, sorry, they're very rare. And even when they do know what they're talking about, they will often still play the game of, 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 you know, pitting one person against another, which just exacerbates the problem. And I think, you know, uh, back to James's point, um, that is one of the things I think a lot of us are questioning, values-wise. Like, how is it that public debate and politics, in particular, has got to this ridiculous partisan, you know, nastiness oh where you where you can't even talk to somebody on the opposite side? So how are we supposed to solve problems together? Uh, and and of course, what the party political system does and the partisans do is they kind of go, well, we just have to destroy the others and then we win and then everything will be fine. And I don't think any of us buy that. And the great thing about the COVID crisis was suddenly you found people coming together and normally met and agreeing on quite a lot. Suddenly, you know, neighbours who perhaps wouldn't have spoken to each other find themselves in support groups for local vulnerable people and all that kind of stuff. And people stopped arguing about Brexit and started realising that actually the most important thing was the community where they lived. And I think, you know, so... So we're all questioning that at the moment, I think. Uh, certainly something, and that's why I try to avoid getting into these partisan debates, because it's just, I mean, obviously in private, you know, I might, you know, after a few oh, years. I mean, you're a horrific right winger. I'm a, you're famously no. uh, fascist. I'm famously fascist and also, uh, <laughs> uh, also, uh, uh, you know, famously alt-left alt, uh, alt as well. I'm just oh. terrible. I'm, <laughs> I'm awful, I'm awful. Like, every way, it depends on what I'm drinking, really. If it's tequila, I go right, and if it's, if it's beer, I go left. Just thought we'd have a little break there because I have a feeling I haven't yet told you about the awesome competition that we're running in time for the launch of the podcast. And it is like right now, what really helps us is if you share the podcast, if you go and subscribe to it and do loads of stuff like that. And so we wanted to encourage that. And so we're doing a competition. So if you were to go to www.lifefulness.io 
forward slash podcast, you can go and enter and there are some amazing prizes. There is a personal development workshop led by James and I. There is a workshop that you could have in your company around culture change. And there are some talks which you could, I mean, we assumed people would want these talks in a company, in a community, in a not-for-profit. But, you know, maybe you can just make us go and talk in your family Zoom. And so you go to lifefulness.io forward slash podcast and there is an entry box and you go and put in your email, you follow the instructions and that would really help us. So thanks so much for listening and back to the pod. The uh, Well, I mean, James and I have these conversations when we go and uh, interview people about how far right wing. No, but like, um, uh, does so-and-so once had this opinion or so-and-so had that opinion? Like, if we bring them on the podcast, does that mean that we have to, like, go and absorb every single opinion there is? Do we have to go and look back through someone's, like, opinion list and be like, uh, well, we want to talk to you about because we're really interested in, you know, cupcakes, but you once said this about rice and <laughs> someone's going to go and say, oh, you, you're just leaving unchallenged their awful opinion on brown rice. And, and yeah. there is, sometimes you see that in podcasts. I don't know, did you ever listen to Joe Rogan? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and like, there's a bit where he's just like, he'll have anyone on that, like, he can have Hitler on his show and he'd be asking him about his dog and like the, how does a vegetarian diet help you? And that is, I think, too much on the, <laughs> let's go and look at what we've got in common scale. Yeah, uh, to be honest, if he had Hitler on the show, there'd be more the reincarnation uh, issue, I think, I mean, I'd be interested uh, in. What a guest. Yeah, that would be a great, <laughs> 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 that'd get you in the news. Yeah. And this, yeah. And this week... James and Sanderson interview Hitler. I, there's, there's a crazy story behind it. Uh, the uh, Because, I mean, I suppose also, I'm sure you've been in those planning meetings on various projects, and the, the planning list starts off with Stephen Fry, yeah. uh, sort of so-and-so. I mean, you put you pop, you pop Adolf on there, and people are really asking, how are you going to get him on, really? Yeah, indeed. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't really get out of, out of the grave for less than 100,000 years, <laughs> Uh, one thing which that's what's uh, really stopping us doing it <laughs> yeah yeah it's not it's not the fact it's probably the most you know obvious monster of the 20th century it's the fees he's certainly controversial yes. uh, the uh, and uh, one of the things i really uh, like about your work is that it does go like you're always looking at actually at this idea of the uh, you know, you've, you're sort of meeting people up here of like, you know, who have maybe got their hand systems, uh, hands closer to the levers and what have you, but like go and bring it down to, you go and read one of your books and you think, okay, this is, that uh, it's got a relevance to me. Uh, mm. One of the, uh, that uh, your, uh, your ladder to heaven, stairway to action. Uh, yes. Uh, I don't know, Triangle of Doom or, but yeah, I, I really like that as just an explanation of how you can go and think about getting something from your own life to actually systems change. And I was just wondering if you could. Uh, yes, that's the human trust it. ladder. That's the human, the human trust, trust ladder. ladder. There that's we it, go. Which I use quite a lot. So the human trust ladder is very simple. We all know it. We all instinctively know it, but, but we don't often we don't actually have it sort of conceptualized. And um, so it basically starts off with how do human beings build societies? How do we come to you know, live on this planet where actually when you look at it, there's an insane amount of collaboration, you know, millions of people collaborated for us to have this, uh, this discussion. Because if you think of all the people, all the technology, that gone, it's mm. literally it's, it's the human, human beings have collaborated uh, more than they have not over time. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. So how do, how do, how do groups of people come together? 
and it's the trust ladder. And it starts off, I always use this example, if you go to a party and you don't know anybody, you do small talk, right? And what you're doing there is you're just checking that the person opposite you is not trying to steal your drink or kill you. Okay. Mm. So the first level of trust, the way we start this first level of trust is we, 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 we tell stories, essentially. Things that we can, you know, oh, how did you get here? And lovely weather, blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, and you're just establishing that level of trust. like, okay, nobody's actually trying to kill me or, you know, murder my children or steal my food or whatever it is. Once you get past that, I like that you put those on the same level. Steal <laughs> my food, murder my children, all the normal things I look yeah, for. Yeah, all, all the normal things I worry about. Um, <laughs> so once you've got that level of trust, then you go up to the next level of trust, which you start sharing information. So you kind of go, okay, I will tell you things about me that are true. Uh, I'll tell you where I live, uh, who I vote for, what I do for a living, or what, all that kind of stuff. You get that level of information. And you find organizations where departments share information they work better than organizations where departments keep the information, you know, in silos and keep to themselves. Um, then you've, once you've got the information sharing level, you go up to the next level, which is asset sharing. It's like, okay, now I trust you this, this level. I'm happy to, to share something of actual value with you. So you can borrow my lawnmower, for instance, because I figured that you will return it. You won't steal it. You can babysit my kids if you think of your kids as an asset. But, you know, um, in, in a company, you might go, okay, yes, we can, we're, we can definitely second Sanders to your, uh, Sanders into your department because, you know, you need him. And, and even though we like him, you know, it's okay for us to share staff and resources yeah. and access to databases. Again, organizations that share assets across departments work better than ones that just share information. And so once you've got to that level, you go up to the next level, which is like, okay, now we've got that, that happy level, let's do some projects together. So cross-departmental projects or cross-organizational projects or cross-community projects. So for instance, in my neighborhood in Southeast London, um, we went and built a cafe together because there wasn't one. Mm. And that was a really, and, and that was a really big, important thing to the community because people have got to like each other. And I thought, yeah, well, there's no cafe. We do the vegan cafe, so we build a cafe. And then once you've got to the project level, you go to the final level, which is okay, having done those projects together, then the next thing is okay, having done that together and got to know each other and having been through that experience, we kind of worked out the rules of the game be changing. There's something wrong about the way this is financed or the way the law is structured or the way the local planning system works or whatever it is. And we're going to try and change the game either by going to politics or lobbying or you know, forming a new organisation or whatever it is. So, um, so that's how you go up that ladder. So but that's, how we, sorry, that's how we go up the ladder. And there's nothing... nothing uh, rocket science about that, right? And, you know, everybody mm. recognizes that and they'll bleed into each other. So what I'm doing when I'm looking at organizations or change, you kind of go, well, where are we on this ladder? Because there's no point in trying to get to the systems change level, which is the top level. If you're still at the information sharing level, you have to go up to the next one, which is the asset sharing level. And when people are there, then you have to go up to the next one. You can't go from, and the problem with the world is that people try and do systems change exactly the wrong way around in that they start at the priorities level and they kind of go, right, Here's the rules of the game. I've decided them right now. Here are the projects we're going to do. Okay. Now here's the uh, here's the assets we need to corral to do that. Here's the information I'm going to share with you. And finally, they'll tell the story. They'll sell it to the citizen or the employee mm. or whatever right at the end. And unless your community is at at least an asset sharing level of coherence, no amount of that kind of leadership will ever work because they'll just go, well, you know, I don't. I, why should I listen to you? I don't know the guy next door. My friend Agamemnon Atiro said this rather brilliantly. So he's a brilliant system change guy. Your friend who? Agamemnon Atero. That's one of the greatest names I've ever heard in my life. It is fantastic. Yeah, he is one of the goody. He is one of the greatest uh, stories of all time. In fact, they've made a few documentaries about him and his life and how he got that name. 
Anyway, Agamemnon is a brilliant. Uh, Do you have his number? Can we? Yeah. Can, can we patch him. him in now? Sorry, Not I don't now. mean to say. Okay, all right. Sorry. Thanks, that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry, you just really sold him. I was like, oh yeah, god, he's great. You should in. Definitely have him on because he's okay. fantastic, but not on my fucking show. Okay. Well, I don't know. You just really <laughs> sold it hard there, Mark. I don't right. Know. Anyway, so going to get back to the point. Okay. So, get back to you. Agamemnon. I'm talking about. I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Agamemnon is, is now. You know, he's one of the world's leaders, experts in getting community energy projects off the ground. So, project-based kind of community stuff. And he said, "I wish I'd learned about that human trust ladder." 20 years ago, because I used to turn up in deprived areas in London, you know, Brixton, Hackney, whatever, 20, 25 years ago, where he's trying to thought, community energy, great, we can bring people together, we can teach people skills, they can own something, we can reduce their bills, blah, blah. So you turn up, you knock on the door, and you say, hello, my name's Agamemnon, which is always an interesting start anyway, as James yeah. just demonstrated. You go, hello, I'm Agamemnon, I've got this idea for a community energy project, and they will just go, you can fuck off, because I don't know Jeff next door. Yeah. So too many people try and do system change by saying, Here, this is what we need to do. But unless your community, unless you have social cohesion, no amount of change is incredibly, incredibly hard. And that's where sort of congregations indeed and the stuff you're talking about come in really usefully because you have to have a certain level of cohesion and trust between people before they can be led or lead themselves to any kind of significant or meaningful change. And I think one of the ways you get up that ladder is well, I call them participation viruses. So I'm always trying to design a participation virus. And a participation virus is where the act of replication of the thing you want to happen is in itself enjoyable. So the classic example is sex, okay? Mother nature made sex something we do anyway. She made it enjoyable. So, you know. She didn't call it a replication um, virus though. Do you want to come upstairs and let's replication it, it, virus together? <laughs> it's a participation virus. You know, most oh, people would have sex anyway, even okay. if it didn't mean having a child. Yeah. Right. So you make the act of replication in and of itself a reward for the participant. So um, consumerism does this. It tells you that shopping, for instance, is an mm. enjoyable thing. I, I personally don't enjoy it, but lots of people do. And the social networks are very good at this. They understand how to get that little dopamine hit. So, that, so you make the thing you want, the act of replication, you make that its own reward. And so one of the ways, and that, this is why, you know, I'm a big fan of yours, Sanderson, is one of the greatest participation viruses is laughter. You can find mm. something people do because it will make them laugh. And again, you know, I would imagine, you know, I, I, it's a long time since I've been to church, but, you know, I imagine a lot of what people get out of a really good congregation is actually going there in and of itself is its own reward and then once people are there they might go oh well you know I've, I've, i'm thinking you know more morally or more ethically or more about this or whatever but i go because i get to meet you know mary and sit next to her and chat to her and blah blah and then i get you know and we have this sense of community so, so it's a very that's a, you know, a, another example of a participation virus i think that's almost all of it mark i think that's most of what people get out of a congregational community is just the sheer pleasure of being around other people and developing those relationships and the yeah. moral and civic benefits follow on from that yeah. i think you're exactly right I yeah. love this and, and this is why you know churches the organized bit of religion so that's the, the organized bit of religion you cannot organize people unless they're coherent as a group okay so that's what I think, you know, congregations do very, very well. They get people together, they like each other, they know each other, they have a level of trust. So that when you say to them, will you come and build a schoolhouse? They go, yeah. You all walk to them individually, you know, in town and say, we're going to build a schoolhouse. And we're going, who are you? 
And I will, I, I, that, uh, there's so many parts of this, which I just think are so ripe and so like just totally involved in this idea of lifefulness. And I, I think one of the reasons we feel so disconnected from politics is that we think that is that it actually isn't connected to our day to day lives and not in a knocking on doors and sort of only doing the campaigning bit, but you know, that there is a community that we're part of and that our expression of wanting to change this is a reflection of the stories that we're telling each other down here. I've, I found a great quote recently from Harold Wilson, which was, uh, the labor movement owes more to Methodism than Marxism. <laughs> and it is this idea that like it was, you know, by the time it got became a political force, it was actually something which was from an, an everyday sort of connection which people had. And yeah. then that goes to, to the next level. And I, I'd say that I really hope that some people who are listening to this can go and see, well, that's actually one of the best ways to feel politically empowered mm. is to find stuff that you're doing locally, which then has that as a final expression, not as the sort of main part of it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that sense of community and making it fun in of itself is one of the reasons, for instance, that Extinction Rebellion did so much better than, say, Friends of the Earth mm. or Greenpeace. Now, that I'm, I'm fans of Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, and that's their friends on the boards of both. But, but when it comes to getting people participating and getting out on the streets and demonstrating and actually making change, because we've had changes in policy as a result of what they've done, they were very good at making it inclusive and actually quite fun. If you ever went to an Extinction Rebellion um, gathering, there was, there was a good sense of humour about it. It was quite nice. You felt safe. And there were you know, ex-police officers and, and you know, mothers with babes in arms you know, sat in the same you know, place, all you know, kind of enjoying each other's company and having a bit of a laugh. So they got that participation virus thing, I think, pretty pretty good, which is why they're able to affect change quite quickly. Yeah, we hopefully we're going to be uh, able to get uh, a brilliant uh, woman from Extinction Rebellion on this because we I should get Gail. Done. We should get Gail Bradbrook. She's fantastic. Now I feel bad that I want to go and get Claire. But right. Gail is also fantastic. Well, Gail's also quite spiritual, isn't she? She should probably speak more to your kind of congregational type oh, thing, I think. Yes, there's quite a Christian element to it. I'm always intrigued by when you go and discover these things where you're like, there's, like, again, in lifefulness, one of the areas I think which will be really rich to explore is I think one of the reasons a lot of people, a lot of mindfulness practitioners are Buddhists who've gone and actually have a language for going into companies and saying mm. i oh, i do mindfulness and then you're like oh, secret buddhist uh, <laughs> and then I'd, I'd really love it if there were more sort of christians who are able to get involved in lifefulness and just be able to say oh look you can make people sing you can not make people you can help people sing uh you can go and do all of these small groups no force like, them to sing forced singing uh is also a key part of it there yeah. But then actually say, but it's a yes. way of doing it that everyone can be in the room at the same time. Mm. Um, I think there's been a problem with the mindfulness thing, which is, you know, yeah. trying to sell people, which has turned into almost a market now, trying to sell people these techniques. And there's a question of why are we so miserable in the first place? And actually some of that is systems change stuff. You know, if you look at the world, you know, we have political system, which we've discussed is, is wholly unfit for purpose. Inequality is rife and getting worse um that we're on a, 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 a hiding to sort of a three four degree world at the moment uh with climate change uh 85 percent of people don't like their jobs 
Um, the healthcare system is the healthcare system is a, is a massively labyrinthine and expensive sick care system that benefit, you know, the, for the benefit of the rich, uh, and so on and so on and so forth. So, you know, mindfulness is all very well and good, but actually there's more fundamental ones, which is why are we so bloody miserable in the first place? And why have we got this so wrong? And then come trying to sell me, you know, 10 minutes of setting down with, you know, a mindfulness app. And companies buying their employees mindfulness apps. So why are your employees so bloody miserable? Because they're working their nuts off and they see their bribe, their salary is bribery, not reward. So uh, maybe you should fix that, you buggers. I went into I went into the NHS and the stuff that I'm speaking about of like getting people together and being able to have a cup. They're like, we would, yeah, we've got to be able to have solutions which help people, but which they're not allowed any time off from the floor. And you're like, how on earth could, like imagine if you had an aeroplane, it's like, uh, yeah, I know maintenance staff, they've got to be in the air the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and we're just not going to go and look at any of the reasons why these planes are falling out of the sky. Well, I mean, this is part of the thing with systems change is if you, you, you tend to value what you measure. Mm. Uh, and if you're measuring the wrong things, you're in real trouble. Uh, Thomas Pinch on the American author said this rather well. So to get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to give a fuck about the answers. And we're asking ourselves the wrong questions and measuring the wrong things. And that creates very perverse uh, sets of behaviors that people think are normal. There's another great, great quote from a man called Eli Goldratt, who was a physicist who became a business guru in the 80s. And he said, tell me how you're going to measure me. But if you measure me strangely, don't be surprised if I act perversely. And we have very perverse, like hospitals, for instance. So if you look at the best healthcare system in the world, they actually have the fewest hospitals because the reason that they have good healthcare outcomes is because their citizens are healthier. Okay, so when a, you know when we say oh we're going to build forty new hospitals, you're going like, well, why is everybody so ill? We've got a, <laughs> that thing. Of, we've got a national sickness service, yes. not a national health exactly. service. I was exactly. speaking at a uh, local government cons- uh, uh, conference once, and I may accidentally made a local government meme, oh. <laughs> uh, which uh, someone took a picture. That may of. be the saddest thing you've ever done, son. I know. I know. I was doing a uh, so. Uh, Mark, you'll have been on the same sad journey that I've been on of like when you're a stand up, you measure your success by how much people laugh. But what, mm-hmm. like when you're doing sort of keynote speaking or consulting, you measure your success by how many people lift up their mobile phones and like take a picture of a slide. And you're like, eh, I really nailed that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that, that the idea that it's cheaper to have a fence at the top of the cliff than an ambulance at the bottom. But yeah. the ambulance is a statutory service. Uh, so we've got no funds for the fence. And uh, in fact, the ambulance can't get here because it's looking after a lady who was just a bit lonely. Yeah. And that's so many of our systems. You just start doing these really weird things. Yeah. And the other problem you have with systems change is that actually everybody in them can usually say they're doing a good job on their right. So if you're a teacher, you know, you're doing a good job, really, of educating kids and whatever. And if you work for the energy system where you're providing energy for people to heat their homes and whatever, and if you're working politics where you're trying to fight the good fight for, you know, to, for democracy or whatever. So everybody can, can easily say they're doing a good job. And in fact, everybody kind of is. But the system itself is past its sell-by date. There's another quote I use a lot in my consulting work, which is by Upton Sinclair, a great American novelist who wrote The Jungle, amongst other things, and actually ran for US president at one point. And in one of his essays he wrote when he was running for president he wrote this brilliant line which is you know it's very difficult to get somebody to understand something when their salary depends upon them not understanding it 
And so one of the big problems with system changes, lots of people are doing useless jobs. If you looked at it from the big picture, mm. that is how they justify themselves. If you go to somebody and say, what you're doing doesn't make any sense. And that thing that they're doing is paying their mortgage or feeding their kids, then it's not surprising they're not going to be very receptive. And so you also have to find ways to move those people to something else and take them on that journey, which is again, you know, a whole set of systems change stuff you know, around that. The, as we get to draw to the close of this, oh, we always like to go and end I just on... got started. What are you talking about? You've got a friend of Agamemnon, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, he's actually on the other line. He's calling yeah. in. Yeah. Agus, heard so much about you. <laughs> about that energy, community energy, baby. That's where it's at. Stevenson who? Mm. Uh, the, is, uh, like we always like to ask people, what does living life as fully as possible mean to you? And I think that there's this, when you were saying this thing of how are you... Uh, I really sort of thought of it when it was saying like system, like how are you measuring, how are you being measured and how are uh, we measuring our systems? So often I think that it's the measures we go and impose on ourselves, which go and mm. sort of go and get us into slightly funny situations or like lead us into happiness. So yeah, what does living life as fully as possible mean to you? It's a very good question. And um because sometimes I think I should live it a bit less fully and enjoy it a bit more. Mm. Um, I think it's Tom Hanks, I had an interview, he said, loneliness is to be avoided, but solitude is to be sought out. And I don't have much solitude in my life because I've got two small kids and I'm working constantly. And my wife says this thing, she says, your problem, Mark, is you turn all of your hobbies into jobs. And on one time, that sounds great because, you know, suddenly I'm doing lots of stuff that I really enjoy or whatever, but then it becomes... One time you became a prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) Sex worker. Yes, that's definitely... Thank you, Samson. I was going to correct you. (laughs) Uh, um, I don't know whether... It's just a... This is is why I stopped doing stand-up because you can't have a normal conversation with you. We can't... Go on, now it feels Imagine how it is for me to write a book. Imagine, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, So... I mean, one of the rules I kind of live by, and I can think this again ties to your subject matter, is something I learned from Daniel Dennett. And Daniel is a philosopher. People that know him as a philosopher is, you know, pretty, pretty up there in philosophy world. Mm. You know, he's definitely in the, you know, top 10. He's like a, a Stevie Wonder level philosopher or something. And um, he said, um, so one of the occupational hazards of being a philosopher is to get asked difficult questions at parties. Mm. Uh, like you know what's consciousness and he's like it's it's my night off you know we've been holding that for 2000 years but another question he gets asked a lot is what's the definition of happiness and he says the best definition i've found for happiness is this find something more important than you are and dedicate your life to it mm. and i think lifefulness is probably about that for me find something because as soon as you find something more important than you are i think it allows you to flourish within with a sense of your own fragility and and your own beauty as well that the fact that there is some there, and, and and through you that thing will be expressed in uniquely your way and if you can find that way to do it that's quite nice but i think you know try i wish i just worried less because mm. i'm always worrying about whether i'm getting it right or whatever and you know and i think the thing i would have to learn is is just to chill out and give my cut myself some slack which i'm not very good at at all so so, you know, doing, doing your podcast is probably the uh, absolute expression 
of mindfulness because I've actually relaxed a bit and enjoyed myself. The, that's great. One thing I always like doing is seeing when people, the handy thing about videos, you see when people start to make moves and you mm. were saying, you suddenly said, is to find something, your hands are moving, find something bigger than yourself and serve that. Mm. And what sort of, what feeling were you having then? Because there was a little, there seemed to be a little frisson or charge that went through you as you thought about this, this thing that you're serving. And I'm sorry, and, and it might be, but it was just happened to be the thing that you said it. Uh, that, like, uh, I mean... What was the feeling? Yeah. The feeling is trying to be useful, I think. Just trying to be useful. And that probably goes right back to the beginning of this conversation. We were talking about our fathers. Mm. And them thinking that we're useful or whatever. And um, yeah, I want to be useful. Um, and I want to be used for the cause of something good. And to be honest, you know, there's a lot to fix. So it's a really good time to be alive if you're somebody who wants to be useful because there's a lot, you know, of useful things to be done. And I'd like to do that with as wide a variety of people as possible. So, um, so yeah, it's that feeling of moving forward. And also, I mean, for me, I've got two young kids and I want to set them a culture of A, being healthy and happy and useful because all the people I know that are happy, they do have that bigger calling, you know, that they've got passion about something. You know, you, what you don't want is to be stuck in a, at a party with the people who, who don't have any passion, don't have that bigger than me thing. You know what it's like, you get stuck next to them at a party, it's just like walking corporate dead, all they can talk about is their kitchen extension and where they're gonna go when they retire. You know, it's like, oh God, this is so dull. Whereas the people we love are the people they're really passionate about, want to talk about, whether that's, you know, you know, ultimate Frisbee or, 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 or you know, climate change whatever it is there's people with a little bit of something mm. that, that is big that they 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 feel is bigger than them and that that's that's what i'm feeling i suppose i've got a passion for for communicating really that's why i still am a musician it's why i still write comedy it's why i do my podcast the wonderful john richardson and the future notes which i do uh it's why i write books Love it's it. why i do um you know public speaking mm. all that kind of stuff because you know, I like to be able to take complex things and make them understandable to lay people without trivialising them. I guess that's my passion. Well, you have got, you've got that absolutely nailed the communication vibe because as we we're getting to the end, you just decided to put bows on multiple different themes. You went and raised impressive. up some more, sort of like brought the light motifs back into the mm. climatic motif. That's the end of my knowledge of motifs there. Uh, are, are there any things, places where people can follow you, things that they can, where they can they buy your book? Where can they buy your <laughs> difficult second album, etc.? Yes, I, I, I was a bit worried when you said there's places people can follow. Yes, if you go to, to New Cross Gate, you know, you can <laughs> probably see me in a local cafe if you want to stalk me. Um, uh, I, my Twitter handle is at optimist on tour and you can probably find everything else from me hanging off that summer. There's a website and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and my band is called quantum pig and their first album is universally well reviewed. Um, uh, mostly written by my brilliant co-writer Ian Farragher. So that's out on white star records at the moment. And we're currently writing album two. Um, yes. And John Richardson, the future, which is a podcast, a podcast I do with the wonderful Ed Gillespie and the wonderful John Richardson, the comedian. That's, that's getting great guns at the moment. So you can listen to that if you like. Yeah, that is a ton of fun as well. Hey, look, Mark, thank you so much. Uh, thanks, uh, for your time and your passion and for, uh, you know, everything that you do. So, uh, been lovely to have you here. Been wonderful thank you, Mark. to be on. Thank you very much indeed. So that was the conversation with the wonderful Mark Stevenson, you know, 
his whole idea of systems change is so perfectly aligned with the idea from lifefulness of changing the world one of the six pillars of lifefulness if you haven't yet uh, heard the lifefulness mini series we dropped it when this launched so you can go and check it out there one thing which I wish we'd got into a bit more is this idea of emergence. We've sort of touched on it, but like it'd be great to get in there more. And uh, I did feel a bit bad when he said, "Oh, that's a problem with handing, hanging out with comedians. They're always interjecting." And it like the whole point of doing this is I want to go and make it like more fun. And you know these things you know should be fun. And then it's just a bit tricky when you're all on Zoom and you're trying to work out when to like jump in and all the rest of it. And so. You end up being Mr. Talking Over Other People on Panel Shows, guys. But you've got to know, it's because I want you to like it. I want to have fun and it will be funny. Anyway, that was just something which uh, I thought about after he said it. I then shut up for a bit. You know, who's going to be the person who's thinking, yeah, I'm thinking glad you did. Yeah, it's a really cool conversation. And what I'm doing with all of these podcasts is going to drop when we launch at the start of September and what I'm sort of doing is going back like doing a countdown leading up to that so this is now in this countdown we are now nine weeks before launch it is mid-July the weather's lovely Uh, this is the journey of the life on this project and yeah, it was really exciting. There were loads of people who wanted to join the life on this community. Like in earlier podcasts, I said there wasn't a sort of clear idea of what to do with the life on this community. And actually, tell you the truth, there wasn't. I had Ashoka, which is this organization which supports uh, groundbreaking social entrepreneurs like me. I always feel really bad when talking about these uh, uh, things, these gongs. Uh, and it's not really a gong. Didn't get it from the Queen. Oh, well done. I make you a social entrepreneur of the British Empire. S-B-E. Uh, S-E-B-E. And yeah, they uh, put a shout out to their network for people who would want to help the life on this project. And I started hearing back from loads of people who were uh, wanted to help on the life on this at work side of things. And what's quite interesting is at this time, they're you know, there were loads of people who were like talking to each other. And it was really exciting to see it develop. It's quite interesting looking back on it is like what happens when, you know, sometimes communities can start organically if there's enough time and space devoted to them. But at this stage, it was exciting. But with a the small theory, I like idea that I couldn't sort of concentrate as much time on it as I wanted to, but I was trying to. So anyway, uh, this was also the week uh mid-July when we'd recorded the first two podcasts and that had been a real focus so that was really fun spoke to Lisa spoke to Matthew uh Paris and it was a real sense of like okay yeah this is uh, can really be a thing the other thing I want to do in the outro is actually talk about like what we're doing now for the community because it's clear that you know life like a podcast goes and is useful but actually what really changes the world and what really changes people well there's lots of things lots of things change people but what i believe is it's through community and so we're doing life on this small groups if you like the idea of this you we are going to do meeting twice a month at eight o'clock uh and it's going to start off online and it's going to be through zoom but in time it'll come to be in person and it's weird often we think that like community it's not the same as politics it's not the same as going on the street but to my mind that is a thing which makes a difference like the it's like building the muscles of uh, society and 
So that's what we're sort of, you know, what we do go and make this huge emphasis on community. And if that's important to you, whether you chime with, you know, wanting a lifefulness community near you or to meet people near you or whether you've got uh like the sound of lifefulness at work of like using this to go and create uh workplaces which aren't as shit uh or the idea of like you know think oh, i'd love to be a secular vicar well that's what uh lifefulness wants to help people do and so if these sorts of things chime with you go to www.lifefulness.io forward slash membership and go and find out more details and that leaves me only to say that if you're listening to this at the start of the podcast, please like, subscribe, share, spread it around, tattoo it on your bottom, tattoo it on other people's bottoms, uh, tattoo it only after you've asked them. Consent is important. Uh, and then, yeah, so please do spread the word. It really makes a difference. There's also the Lifefulness podcast competition. So go and find that. And the last thing to say is just to do the credits. Thank you so much, Mark Stevenson. You're amazing. Uh, thank you to my delightful uh, co-host, James Croft. You're brilliant, James. Uh, thanks to... Uh, our producer Mads Shetty thanks to the artwork from Will Andrews and thanks for the music Roman Rapak and Miro Shot see you next time losers <laughs> don't know why I said that but I did and I'm just keeping it in <laughs>